morning. Good morning, everyone. And my name is Kim, Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Um, welcome to the step one meeting um, of There's a Solution workshop. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of split this um, half hour each. I'm going to talk about the allergy of the body, and Maria's going to talk about the mental obsession. And then at 10 a.m., we'll be asking, answering any questions that you might have. So just to start out, I want to talk, um, have us, if anyone who has a book, um, page 44. Because our disease, I had to know what I suffered from. It wasn't honestly until I, I, I understand the urgency of what I suffered from that I was willing to submit to this program of recovery. So on page 44, we're asked two very simple questions. Um, and I didn't turn the right page. So it says, in the preceding chapters, we've learned something of alcoholism. We hope you've made a clear distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. So here are the two questions. If, if when you honestly want to, you cannot quit entirely, meaning that when abstinent, you cannot stay abstinent for any period of time contently, that's the mental obsession, which is what Maria is going to talk about. It says, or if when eating, you have little control over the amount you take, which is the allergy, meaning once I, I ingest certain foods, certain ingredients, and, and engage in certain behaviors, I cannot reasonably predict what the heck is going to happen. That means I have the allergy, and that's what I'm going to talk about. So it says, if that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. So until I'm convinced of those two aspects that I internally have them, you know, the program of action just seems like an interesting story or, or, or an option for me. So let's go back to the beginning of the doctor's opinion. Um, so if you are in the uh, fourth edition, it's XXV. If you happen to have the smaller 164, it's XXI. So it talks about um, this, this gentleman, Dr. William Silkworth. So I just want to talk about him for a minute. He, he is somebody that, that it's estimated he worked with about 50,000 alcoholics. And as he was working with these alcoholics, he started to notice patterns. So there was a certain amount of people that would get admitted to the hospital and from consequences from their drinking, and he would dry them out, and they would leave the hospital, and he would never see them again. And there was another percentage of them that they would come into the hospital because of the consequences of their drinking. He would dry them out, they'd leave the hospital, and they might come back a second or a third time. And he sat them down and said, listen, it looks to me like you cannot handle your drinking. My suggestion is don't drink at all and you shouldn't have a problem. And th those people left and he never saw them again. But there was a certain percentage, he estimated about 10%, that no matter how many times he physically dried them out and no matter how many times he explained the consequences of their drinking, they would return to the hospital over and over again. So that's what we're trying to find out. Alcoholics Anonymous is not for people who drank. I drank a lot in college. I am not an alcoholic. You know, two-thirds of Americans are supposed to be obese. Two-thirds of Americans are not compulsive overeaters. We have to ask, are we part of this 10%? And if we are part of this 10%, then Overeaters Anonymous is a home where you can recover. Um, so let's look at page XXVI, which is after the first letter, or XXII if you have the smaller book. So... Dr. Silkworth writes this letter, and Bill intercedes in between these two letters to, talk, to give us some information as, as an alcoholic himself. The physician who, at our request, gave us this letter 
has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms that we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. And if we skip to the last sentence in that paragraph, in our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. So this is all about the allergy. So I have to recognize that my body is different than the average temperate eater. That when I ingest certain substances, my body has an exaggerated abnormal reaction that never gets satisfied, always intensifies, and my body demands more. It is a biological function. It is not something that's treated with the steps. It's not something that's treated with a pill. They can cut our insides out through bariatric surgery, and we're still going to have that allergic reaction. So that's what I have to be totally convinced of. So let's look at what does it mean to have an allergy. So if we go to XXVIII in the doctor's opinion, or if you're in the smaller book, XXIV, that first paragraph talks about this allergy. So it says, we believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never, 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 never safely use alcohol in any form at all. So that confused me when I first started hearing about this allergy because when I think of an allergy, I think of scratchy throat, watery eyes, breaking out in a rash. And I'm thinking to myself, I can eat you know, enough pasta for a family of 10. I'm not having any of those symptoms. What I didn't realize is most people don't eat enough pasta for a family of 10 in one sitting. That is my allergic reaction. That's the phenomenon of craving. That's that my body gets a charged up, excited, got to have more feeling that other people don't get. Now, what happens is I assume everyone experiences food like me, so I don't understand how they have the willpower not to eat it when I, um, they have willpower not to eat it, and I don't have that willpower. So just to kind of give an example, Maria is also an alcoholic, and I am not an alcoholic. So if we went to the Super Bowl party, which obviously she's going to and I'm not, by our, our tire, um, and we both sat down and had five shots of tequila, we're both going to get drunk because that is the normal response to alcohol. But what's going to happen to me is I'm going to feel a little bit sick, a little bit nauseous, a little bit tipsy, a little bit lightheaded. I don't like that feeling and I don't want any more alcohol. Maria is going to feel a charged up, excited, got to have more. She's Woo! Going, she's run, she, in fact, she's flying to Minnesota to see the Eagle. To see Where's the, the after party? Yeah. yeah, I'm going to the parade. It's going to bleed into, you know, next season. Exactly. So if nine out of ten people react like me and one out of ten people react like Maria, it just means she's having an allergic reaction. That was important to me because I felt so guilty. I felt like I had poor moral character. I felt like I was a bad person because I couldn't do what I saw 9 out of 10 people do. So, for example, using my own memories, and I ask you to do the same, when I was at a birthday party and I would have that piece of cake and I would be like wondering why no one else is having more and hoping that the mom says, does anybody want to help clean up in the kitchen? Because I can be alone with all the leftovers and eat them. And I'm watching my little friend have half a piece of cake, and she stops, and I'm thinking, why does she have that willpower? How does she do that? What I didn't realize is she doesn't have willpower. She stopped eating the cake because she doesn't want any more cake. And in fact, if she had more, she probably would feel a little bit sick, a little bit nauseous. And since she doesn't like that feeling, that's why she's not eating any more cake. 
I don't know about you guys, but you ever been like at an at a event and someone talks about something being too rich? Yeah. I really thought they were lying. Like, I'm like, that's not even possible. Something's too sweet. I'm like, what? You know, but that's the normal reaction that I do not have. So that's what I have to accept. So if I, when I discover those foods, those ingredients, and those behaviors that create that phenomenon of craving, the only way my body's not going to crave it is not to have it. So alcohol in any form. You know, the same way I have sponsees that are alcoholics, that if they have, you know, um, bronchitis or something, and the doctor wants to give them a prescription of a cough suppressant and has alcohol in it, they know they can't have it. Yet how many times, well, you know, I personally abstain from flour, and I, something, you know, I, I order something, oh, I didn't know it was lightly breaded, oh, it's not a big deal, I'm going to have it. My body doesn't care. So I have to identify that. Now, in AA, once again, it's very clear what sobriety is. We are challenged and we are blessed that we are a fellowship, that we have different allergic reactions. The definition of abstinence is the same for every single person in this room. We have to abstain from those foods, those ingredients, and those behaviors that create the phenomenon of craving. But each of us might have a different list. A lot of them are going to overlap. We have a lot of common ones. But there's a lot of stuff that individually, which is why we have to understand what is the effect, which is what we're going to go over next. So if we drop to the bottom of that same page, it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. So I have to look for those foods, those ingredients, and those behaviors that create the effect. Because see, I simply thought I liked Oreos. I like pizza. Can you people teach me how to have two slices of pizza and be okay with that? So if it really is that I just like these foods so much, then why am I eating food when it's stale? Why am I eating food when it's burnt? Why am I eating food? I saw a meme on Facebook the other day that said, you know, this raw diet is really difficult, but I'm going to try it. And it was a picture of cookie dough. And I thought, oh, apparently I did the raw diet in college and didn't even know it. Because I wouldn't, who wants to wait the six or seven minutes to cook a cookie? Let's just eat the cookie dough. So, you know, I had to look at that. It, there was something going on that I was getting an effect. I mean, one of the things I did in, in high school, I cannot stand coconut. And what I would do if I had to make cookies for the school is I would make coconut cookies. Because I'm never going to eat them. And I would literally binge on these coconut cookies while I was gagging because I can't stand the coconut. So there was something else in the ingredients of the cookies that was overriding the fact that I could not stand the taste of coconut. So that's what I'm looking for. And it can be elusive. I, I, another fellow, I love the way she says it. She goes, what are those foods that you want to barter, you want to negotiate, or you're going to grieve if you never have them? When you go into a grocery store, what aisles have you memorized? When you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet, what are the foods that you gravitate towards? When there's a snowstorm predicted, what are the foods that you get anxious that you, if you don't have them in the house? I don't know about you guys. I've never been anxious when, when I run out of broccoli. You know, so there's certain foods I don't get anxious about. You know, what are the foods that I will absolutely go out in a snowstorm to get because I have to have them in order to feel comfortable? Excuse me, Kim. Could you repeat those three things that we would barter? And barter, negotiate, or grieve over. So, you know, we cannot differentiate the true from the false. So I just had to, once again, look at my own history. You know, I remember in college when I would get upset, there was fast food row. 
and I would just go to fast food restaurant ordering from me and an imaginary boyfriend to the next one to the next one. You know, um, when BJ's opened up, well, stores, my thing was you only can have one. Well, the bag of Doritos went from this to that, but it's still one. That's the rationale in my head. You know, um, I used to eat spaghetti out of a mixing bowl. I mean, why would you bother putting a regular bowl and having to go back for second or third? Just make it in a huge mixing bowl. Um, my babysitting jobs were picked by what was in the pantry, not by how the kids behaved. Um, you know, I do remember in my early 20s deciding I couldn't diet anymore because I knew that I was going to gain weight. Why was that? Because once I picked up, I even understood not understanding what, what a compulsive overeater was, that the spring back of not having certain foods and then having it, if I lost 10, I would gain 20. If I lost 20, I would gain 30. So I even understood there, there was something different. I just didn't understand what that meant, if that makes sense. So let's go to page five in Bill's story, because Bill has that same awareness. The, the uh, fourth paragraph down, after a prodigious bender, he says, I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. I did. You know, they say that we lie a lot, and I'm not saying we don't lie, but I meant it. Hook me up to a lie detector. Tomorrow is going to be different. 2018 is the year that I'm going to be able to lose the weight. Monday morning, I mean, God, if you want to go to a big OA meeting, go on a Monday, because we all make that resolution to stop at the end of the weekend. You know, um, so I, I, I understood that, but I didn't understand why that was true for me until I got an education through this book. So let's go to page 22 now, and there's a solution. The last paragraph. <clears throat> we know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol whatsoever into his system, something happens both in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. So I was recovered a few years, um, and I'm very clear. My, I think the biggest gift you can give yourself, and I gave myself, was to have a black and white abstinence. There, sh there should be no wiggle room. You're either abstinent or you're not. This food creates the phenomenon of craving or it doesn't. And I was at, at Wegmans, and they had a starch there that I had never tasted before. Um, and I was looking to kind of vary my starches a little bit. And I asked them if there was any of my, my personal um, binge ingredients flour. I said, oh, no, no, this is just a Middle Eastern grain. It's not flour. Wegmans has the thing where you, all the ingredients, so you can look at their prepared foods. I knew there was none of my binge ingredients in it. I went home, and I actually Googled. It's called Pharos. I Googled Pharos. What is this? It's a Middle Eastern grain. Um, so I weighed out. I, I personally weigh and measure. So I weighed out my four ounces. I had it. It was pleasant. I thought, oh, good. I can add this into my, into my repertoire. And uh, within 45 minutes, my eyes are darting around the room, I'm starting not to be able to sit still. I'm thinking to myself, when's dinner? What's going on? I'm starting to get this tingly feeling, and I'm like, holy crap. Because, see, I understand what the effect is. I had never had pharaohs to understand that I'm allergic to it, and I immediately went into the kitchen, and I threw out the rest of the pharaohs. I have no idea why. But what the education I had was that my body doesn't care whether I ingest it accidentally, on purpose, in trace amounts. 
The fact is that I understand the effect, and therefore, when I ingest something with that effect, if I start, if food starts to get sexy, I call it, the food has to be eliminated. Because I know that sexy feeling. You know, I'm someone that, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, over six feet tall, I mean, it isn't good. And I can't explain why it happens, but I know when it happens. I had shared this at a meeting. I was, um, I don't know, I'm 50 years old, so a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, I'm going somewhere and I turn a corner and I go, oh, this guy, my whole body started to vibrate. And then I was immediately humiliated because he was probably 24 years old. And I'm like, I am an old, disgusting woman. But I can't control that. My body reacts when a guy like that walks into the room. I can't control my allergy. That's what I have to recognize. Um, okay, so let's go to page 30 and more about alcoholism. In that first paragraph, about halfway through, it says the idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. When I heard that, that it kind of skated over my head till someone talked about their experience, and I started to recognize when I'm controlling my food, I am not enjoying it. And when I am enjoying my food, I'm not controlling it. So that is the illusion that I can do both. And I have to fully concede to my innermost self. If I am the compulsive overeater, if I am part of that 10%, I cannot do that. And the delusion that I can eat like other people has to be smashed. <coughs> this is not a diet program where we get to our goal weight and we get to go back and eat those foods. This is not a program where you get holy enough and the allergy becomes insufficient. And if I'm connected with God, then I can have cake on my birthday or whatever your binge food is. I had to fully concede that. And the delusion I had to break, too, was I don't want to be a normal eater. I said that for years. And I always use the example of my friend Melissa, who is a normal eater. And we will, a bunch of us will meet for dinner, and, she's all, and she'll be running late. And we look at the menu, she's like, oh, my God, I'm so hungry. And she goes, oh, my God, I forgot to eat lunch. I've never forgotten to eat lunch. And then she orders appetizers so she can share with other people. I think of appetizers as a one serving. But, you know, a warm-up, really. And when she, or, when she gets her entree, she often will push stuff to the side. And I said, what are you doing? And she'll say, oh, I thought I was in the mood for it or not. And she is someone that always has to have dessert. And one of two things happens. She either has a couple bites and says it's too rich or she's too full. I don't want to be a normal eater. I want to eat the way I want to eat, and I want to look like my friend Melissa. So what I want to do is fully engage in that allergy and my disease and not have the consequences of my actions. And I had to get that. That delusion had to be smashed. Um, so how do we test this? If we go to the bottom of page 31, there's the test for the allergy. It says, we do not like to pronounce any individual as alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room. Step over to the nearest pantry and try some controlled eating. Try to eat and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take long for you to decide if you are honest with yourself about it. It may be worth a bad case of jitters if you get full knowledge of your condition. So I personally didn't have to do this, this, um, this test in real time. I could just look at my own experience. And I mentioned that I babysat according to what was in people's pantries. So I was very good at getting the kids to sleep. Not because I'm responsible, because I wanted to be alone with their pantry. And this is back in the 80s before DVRs and all that kind of stuff. So I would sit there and I would grab, you know, my three whatever. 
And I would say, that's all I'm going to have. And I'd be watching TV, and by <clears> next <throat> the commercial, I'm like, well, maybe I'm just going to have three more. And then I would have three more. And then I wouldn't make it to the next commercial, and I would have three more. So within, you know, that once that allergy was, was going, you know, I had finished the whole bag, and I would put the bag in my car because I was embarrassed to put them in, in their trash. Because see what happens to me is that first bite is, oh. and by that fourth bite, I forget the first bite, and I am, I am off and running, and the intensity to eat is 10 times worse, four or five bites in, than that, what I needed at that first bite. That's what the allergy does to us. So on page 33 now, <clears throat> that second paragraph that starts, stops, this is a powerful lesson about halfway through. The truth that is demonstrated again and again, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Commencing to eat after a period of abstinence, we are in a short time as bad as ever. If we are planning to stop eating, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we'll be immune to alcohol. We have to fully concede this allergy is a permanent, permanent condition. A food doesn't become okay to eat after a certain period of time. You know, I personally have an allergy to penicillin, had a really bad reaction when I was an infant. Don't even remember because I was an infant. But I am under no delusion that if I had penicillin at 50 years old, that I wouldn't be allergic to it. In fact, my personal belief is the reaction would probably be a lot worse because I'm older and my body doesn't have the resistance it did when I was younger. You know, seven years ago, I, um, I broke my ankle and I was in, a, in an ambulance and they're bringing me to the hospital and I thought I was going to pass out if the pain was so bad. And I remember grabbing the woman in the ambulance and saying, I think I might pass out. Please put on my chart that I'm allergic to penicillin. Like, that's how sane I am. I get that. You know, I don't go to the doctor when I'm sick, and they says, I won't, okay, Kim, you're sick. I'm going to give you some amoxicillin. But you know what? If it's 10 milligrams, doc, maybe I can have 2 milligrams of the penicillin and 8 milligrams of the amoxicillin. Because maybe there's a threshold. I hear that all the time from people. I think there's a threshold. You know, I think if the fifth ingredient, if it's, if it's just, you know, less than 2%, if it's, if it's just on the side, maybe I won't have a reaction. Our bodies do not have that ability to differentiate. You ingest it, you're going to have the allergic reaction. To me, it's like if you're allergic to strawberries and you break out in a rash, the, the, the rationale that the alcoholic mind will tell you is, okay, ingest the strawberries and then let's try to control the rash. That's what we're doing when we're, we're, we're challenging that, um, that allergy. So now let's go to page 34. <clears throat> that second paragraph. So it says, for those who are unable to eat moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. So as I'm wrapping up, that's the question you have to ask yourself. If you are fully convinced that you cannot eat moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. Because this is not a program that we can do, you know, part-time. This is not a part-time type of thing where I can have the... And, I, you know, unfortunately, I hear that in OA meetings. Well, yeah, you know, I'm better now, but I can still have cake on my birthday. Or when I'm on vacation, if there's no other option, I'm, you know, it's okay if I indulge. Maybe you can get away with that once or twice, which I'm sure Maria will talk about at certain times. But I have to fully concede that I cannot eat these things, so therefore I need to stop. 
So as we're starting to transition into the mental twist, which is why I can't stay stopped, I want to point out in the doctor's opinion, there are four different places, and I'm not going to give the page numbers because I don't want to take up the time, that tells us we have to put the food down first. We have to. The greater aspect of our disease is the mental twist, but I don't have the clarity of mind in order to, to do that. So in the doctor's opinion, it tells us um, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, as he has a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. It also says, of course an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. Mm -hmm. And even in there, when Dr. Silkworth is, is, is says, well, what is the solution? He can't even describe it. So what he does is he gives two examples of people that have recovered. And in both of those examples, in the first one, it says following the elimination of alcohol, then he accepted the, the plan outlined in this book. And with the next gentleman, following his physical rehabilitation, he became sold on the ideas contained in this book. So I have to tell you, I always thought that it was all about life going my way. I'm an emotional eater. So, you know... If I can get my emotions in check, I can moderately eat my binge foods. So I'm going to end with this on page XXIX or XXV, depending on the book you have. The last paragraph. I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I have had many men who, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal, which was to be settled on a certain date favorable to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date, and then the phenomenon of craving develops. Once again, I do not experience the phenomenon of craving until I ingest the food. The phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. I don't know about you guys, but once again, I think a lot of women. I was, I was a professional bridesmaid in my 20s. You know, that's when all my friends got married. And I would diet down because I wanted to look good for that wedding. And then the rehearsal dinner or the day of the wedding, I make that exception because now I fit in the dress. And I look good. Why, you know, I can, I can, I can you know, have my reward. And then I would be off and running. So things were going my way. I was feeling good. But yet, when I pick up that food, the allergy doesn't care. Good day bad day. The allergy is always going to happen that I cannot pick up my binge foods in any form or my body will have that physical reaction. And with that, I'll let Maria talk about the greater aspect of our disease. Thanks, Kim. I'm Maria. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here today talking about the um, aspect of my disease that eluded me for a long time. Uh, I came in here in 1990 with about 30 pounds to lose, and I was able to do this um, this this food plan that was it seemed a little uh, you know uh, rigid, but I got it because I remember walking in and a woman saying to me, um, "Well, can you just have a half a cup of pasta?" And I looked at her like she had two heads. Like I knew. In my, in, in my heart of hearts, I could not have a half of a cup of pasta. I said, if I could do that, I wouldn't be here. And she said, well, then I think that you need to go to a different meeting. And what I found was, um, I found the, the Cherry Hill Howe meeting, and what Howe gave me was a very, very 
black and white abstinence. And, and it took me to a point where I could be abstinent and work a food plan. And I dabbled in step work, you know. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't wholeheartedly go into it. And uh, my experience was I had physical abstinence. I was able to stay abstinent. And I got into a normal body size and I was free. And I found a fellowship of, of men and women that I loved. And it was very, very strong. Um, and, and it sustained me for six years until it couldn't sustain me anymore. I, I, I in retrospect, know exactly what happened. Um, I was not taking care of the obsession of my mind. I wasn't taking care of the spiritual malady that gives me this two, twofold illness. I was focused on physical and never understood the mental. Um, because the mental obsession is so strong for me, what it does is basically it tells me some information that I rely on as truth when later I find that they are delusional thoughts. And because they're delusional, they look like truth to me. Mm. I'm not in denial. Because if I were in denial, I'd say something like... Um, you know, uh, I, I can't even give an example, but it's not denial. It, it, denying something would to be to own up to the truth and then say, no, it's not true. But my experience is I would create the truth in my mind and that would become my reality. So for me, you know, um, this blends, this goes into many aspects of my life, but today we're going to talk about food. So I think what I want to do is I want to start off um, right here in uh, There's a Solution, where on the bottom of 22, it says, we know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, she reacts much like other women, right? I react like a normal woman when, I am, when I'm sober and abstinent. I look, I pass. I pass <laughs> for like my sister, who's not compulsive overeater. I'm in a normal body size. I'm not obsessing about food, and, I'm, and everything's going well, right? Um, then it says, we are equally positive that once she takes any alcohol, whatever, into her system, something happens both in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for her to stop. Now, what happened to me was I had six years of this beautiful abstinence, and I am in a beautiful place. I was in Spain, and... I, there was not a cloud on the horizon. I had some agitation. I was with my mother-in-law, and I lost my luggage, and I had to wear her clothes, and being prideful, I wasn't real happy about that. And, you know, meanwhile, I've got my coin with me. That's going to keep me abstinent. And I have my, my journal, because I'm going to write about all my feelings all day long and being in Spain, right? And that's going to keep me abstinent and sober. And what happened to me there was I had a peculiar <coughs> mental twist. And this mental twist literally was a, a change of focus for me. It was a complete 180. No longer was I grateful to be in Spain. No longer was I, you know, um, so excited and, and, and grateful and, and um, spiritual and um, of service. I was actually focused and my eyes could not get away from the flan that was on the other side of the room, that the sangria that was on the other side of the room, looking real sexy, you know, and in a 
peculiar mental blank spot as if I had a um, out-of-body experience. I was watching myself walk across the room, take a slice on a plate, walk it all the way. There's a lot of time here that's going on where I am making this decision to consciously making a decision or unconsciously. I was not awake. I was not an awakened spirit. And for some reason, I needed ease and comfort. And I sat down and I had sugar for the first time in six years. And I got wasted. It was woo right away. Well, little to, I probably don't have to explain what happened. Um, if you are a real compulsive overeater, you can probably tell and probably ch tap into that experience in your own life, right? But what happened to me was, well, huh, that was great, but I'm not going to do that again. And the next morning I went down to breakf breakfast and I would have my you know, abstinent breakfast, but this time I had snuck in a little bit of granola that was sweetened. That's not going to hurt, right? The next day I wasn't measuring the granola that was sweetened. After that, all bets were off. My abstinent lunch gone, not weighing and measuring. Volume goes first. Then it's like, uh, you know what? I may as well drink too while I'm here. And I am off to the races and I say, I'll just get back on track. I'm going to go home. I'm not going to tell anybody because, after all, I've got six years in, in Overeaters Anonymous. I'm normal now. Look at me. I'm a normal body size. I don't have a problem, and I need to help people. So I'm just going to go back, and I'm not going to let anybody know that that happened. And much to my surprise, I could not get back on track. With all of the willpower I could muster, I could not get back on track. And what I do is I go away. I don't need you, right? Why bother? I can't do this, right? And I think in some way I need to, you know, lose weight before I can go back to OA. <laughs> go to the gym before I can, you know, get, clean the house before the cleaning girl comes. Like my mentality is always like that power is something I can access on my own. And little, like, much to my surprise, it was, I was pummeled into that realization but I still did not know what I suffered from. I came in a second time. I still didn't know what I suffered from. I did the 12 steps. I <coughs> attached myself to the most spiritual woman in the room, and she helped me go through them, and something else happened to me. Um, before I get to that, I'm going to just finish this thought on 22, that any alcohol, whatever, goes into my system, and something happens both bodily and mentally which makes it virtually impossible for me to stop. And that was my experience, right? I do not regret that relapse. I needed to experience it. It's not enough to have an intellectual uh, experience with this, with this work. I have to feel it here, the pain and, and, and the, the joy. I have to feel it in my heart. It says the experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink. Why, after six years, would I ever take a first drink or bite? Why? Why did I do that? Right? It says here, it sets the terrible cycle in motion. It wasn't enough for me to intellectually know that. I read this book a million times. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body, and then I knew. Something's going on with my mind. I always felt like there was something wrong with me. As a little kid, as a little girl, I used food differently. And when I was eventually 
in a position like I, I didn't want to be lonely. I was not I was not meant to be a food addict in my house. I'm I'm a social person and I love friends and I love boys. And by the time I was a teenager, being thin was was what is was gonna make me happy because I would fit in, I could I could get out of my food fog and be with you. But I couldn't do it on my own. Lack of power was my dilemma. And that's when alcohol and drugs became paramount in my life. You know? Speed was a great way to to get energized, be with you, and I didn't have to eat. I had a sense of control over food. Um, alcohol, same thing. So what I did was I just kind of like figured, well, you know, I don't need this food. But what I did was I just controlled one form of alcohol to another. And um, that, that's my experience. And I know we're here to talk about food, but there's a lot of, a lot of people that have that same experience. And for me, um, Kim talked about that desire to control and enjoy. And as long as I could use alcohol and other things, boys, drugs, whatever, to control my mind, my thinking mind, my fears, my resentments, like, as long as I could do that, I didn't have to anesthetize myself with food. Um, this says that it, the main problem of the alcoholic center is in his mind. So um, once in a while he may tell the truth. I may tell the truth. <laughs> and it's strange to say, usually I had no idea why I took that first drink any more than anybody else does. I don't know. I can't solve that riddle, right? It says, to, it says to me, some, some eaters have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time, but in their hearts they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady is a real hold, they are a baffled lot. I was baffled. Why can't I get abstinent again? Why can't I stay abstinent? This is the problem. I would say, I, I, Overeaters Anonymous doesn't work for me. I'm not going back there. But I never really worked Overeaters Anonymous. I worked an abstinence plan. And it worked until it didn't. Um, there is the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game, but they often suspect they are down for the count. So after I relapsed the second time, that was my state of mind. Right? I'm down for the count. I'm not even going to play the game anymore. I can't do it. I may as well just eat into oblivion. I just can't do it anymore. I love, um, this was key for me key for me. It says, the tragic truth on the bottom of 23 is that if a, a man is a real alcoholic, a compulsive overeater, the happy day may not arrive where I'm going to rouse myself into abstinence, hmm. wake up and get my shit together. I can't do it. It says, she has lost the control. Now, control is the earmark of our disease. Listen for the word control. Over and over again, Bill uses this word, right? At a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, she passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail, and this tragic tr situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it is suspected. Um, there's a fact. There's a fact about me, and maybe this is a fact about you. Most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in our drinking. That's telling me I don't have a choice. If I don't have a psychic change, a spiritual awakening, a totally different way of thinking, and my attitude changes, and my emotions change, then I will 
eat again. My so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. That means I cannot will myself into becoming abstinent and staying abstinent, right? And I love how it says practically non-existent because my willpower is there. I can do a lot of amazing things. I'm, I'm not stupid. I'm a strong woman. I've got a lot of, you know, moral, ethical, philosophical convictions. And a lot of them, I can, I can really make them stand. They hold some, some clout in my life. But with food, at this point, I can't. I can't. It says we are unable at certain times to bring into the consciousness with sufficient force the memory of suffering and humili humiliation of even a week or a month ago. That means that I do have the memory. I know before I take that bite that I'm going to go from goal weight to 40 pounds heavier in two weeks. You know, I know that. But see, it's not going to come into my memory with sufficient force. Because when the obsession is on me, it is like I am doing battle with a tank. It's going to run me over. I can't do battle with a force that's greater than me. I have a force that's greater than me in my life, and it is food and alcohol and lots of other things. I need to replace that force. I need to get access to a force that's greater than me and greater than food and other things. Mm. Um, it says we are without defense against the first drink. That's my experience. I had the experience. Tap into that. Are you without defense? Do you lack power of choice? Do you lack power, willpower at certain times? And do you lack memory with a sufficient force? Right? I'll remember, but it's, it's not going to help me. Um, there's a whole chapter that is dedicated in our book to the mental obsession, the peculiar mental twist, the peculiar blank spot. You know, um, it says on page 31, um, 30. I'm sorry, 30, most of us have been un unwilling to admit we were real compulsive overeaters. Why, why do I w not want to admit that? Well, maybe because I don't want to change. I don't, I, the risk of leaving this food is too great. I don't have anything to replace it with. Well, there's good news for you. We have a sufficient replacement, and it's a power that's greater than, than food, greater than me, right? But see, I don't know that until I get it. It's this, it's this elusive thing that's out here, this spiritual awakening. What does it mean? How's that possibly going to help me? You know, because I'm still reliant on self. I'm still thinking that I have the power. And until I am pummeled over and over and over again, not just by being in the food and not able to put it down, how about being pummeled by being sober and abstinent and not having relief of my mind, not having joy, not having uh, this, this serenity and this peace that I so long for all my life. It says here, you know, again, the word control comes up. The idea that somehow, someday, I'm going to be able to control and enjoy my eating is my great obsession. The persistence of the illusion astonish is astonishing. See, like, I go to a watch a magic show, and I see a guy saw a woman in half, and I know, in my, look at that, he just saw her in half. No, he didn't. But, but see, for me, 
Look at that. I just put that food down for six years. I can do this. No, that's an illusion that without some power greater than me, I'm not going to be able to do that. And uh, it says, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. I did not know what a compulsive overeater was. I thought, I'm extra. I like everything, (laughs) right? I like food. And it just means that I don't care enough. I'm lazy. I don't like to work. Maybe if I worked out more, I can combat this the extra weight, right? So maybe I'm lazy. Maybe I'm not. Uh, I'm weak-willed. I had so many labels on myself, so many labels on myself. Because see, if I can put a label on me, that would assume that if I had a label, there would be a way to fix it, and then I'd be able to fix myself, right? The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. Now, I'm not going to talk about the delusion while I'm in the food, but the delusion that I am presently like other people while I'm abstinent, while I'm normal body size, while I'm functioning here, that has to be smashed because that gets real, real um, elusive. That starts becoming very, like something, maybe I don't need to go to OA. I don't need to work with overeaters. Maybe I can just hang out in AA. Maybe I can just, you know, lots of thoughts come into my mind that, that keep me in delusions. Because it's safe. I don't have to get out of my comfort zone. I don't have to rely on something bigger than me because I think I'm my solution all the time. Um, there are some examples in here. Till when? We've got 12 minutes until 10 a.m. Okay, so there are some examples in here of this um, mental obsession. And they are ideas that we come across that uh, I actually start believing are fact. And uh, I, can, I can say, you know, there's some truth in here. And then I'm, in, the, in the big book, it's going to give me truth. It's going to combat every one of these myths about the mental obsession. And the first one is, when I fall victim to belief which practically every compulsive overeater has, is that after a long period of sobriety and abstinence and self-discipline, I, it qualifies me to drink like other people. That was me in Spain. It's okay. I got six years. I'm going to have this, and I'll get back on track tomorrow. I'm qualified in some way to combat a tank that's coming at me. I can't do it. The truth is, on page 33, we have seen the truth demonstrated again and again. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Commencing to eat after a period of sobriety, I am in a short time as bad as ever. If I'm planning to stop drinking and eating, there must be no reservation of any kind nor any lurking notion that someday I will be immune to my alcoholic foods. This is difficult for me. And my experience, with the experience that I had that really solidified this, not in my head but in my heart, mm-hmm. was that after I got abstinent the third time, I took to bed in fetal position and I grieved the foods that I will never have again. And I, I cannot live my life saying one day at a time I'm going to battle this yeah. food. One day at a time I'm going to battle this food and I'll come out a winner. I have got to concede to my innermost self that I need to say goodbye to this stuff once and for all. It's not enough because, see, in my mind, I've got this lurking notion. Well, someday, someday, not always. And when I have this black and white thinking about food, I have it with alcohol. I cannot drink alcohol in any form. 
That means I can't smoke marijuana. I can't take any any kind of recreational drugs. I can't. I'm even I have a problem with like you know m medically prescribed things. Anything that takes me out of my mind, I cannot do anymore. I cannot do it. So why will I not admit defeat with food? Why? Because I'm never going to have pasta again and I'm Italian? <laughs> what? what? I've lived without pasta for five years now. I, it's not even on my radar. It makes me sick. I, I, want, I, I get sick. Um, what, I'm never going to have chocolate again? That was a hard one. That was a hard one. But guess what? The life that I live now is so rich and full that chocolate means nothing. It's, there's, there's nothing. Now, there's a lot of steps between one and, and, that, and that place where you have neutrality around food. But if I can give you a little hope to make you want to work to get there, right, I need to replace this spirit. The spirit of food is killing me at this point. I need to replace that. I need a sufficient spirit that's going to combat that, that's going to override that, and I don't have that power. Lack of power is my dilemma. Um, the next story is going to be, of course, uh, the jaywalker. And everybody knows about the jaywalker. It's just a great illustration. But the one thing I want to talk about, you know, the alcoholic mind on page 37 is the best description of what I'm up against, completely sober. I'm stone cold sober and abstinent, and this is what I'm up against. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. In step two, it says, I will be restored to sanity. That implies I'm insane now, right? <laughs> now, I don't have some diagnosis of insanity, but this is the insanity that I'm up against, and it's described in this book. A lack of proportion, the ability to think straight. How can it be called anything else? You may think this is an extreme case. To us, it is not far-fetched for this kind of thinking, not the body, but the mind has been characteristic of every single one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there is always the curious mental phenomenon that parallel with my sound reasoning. Now think of train tracks, parallel train tracks. I'm on track, right? Mm. Chugging down the road. And then inevitably I have some insanely trivial excuse for taking a first bite. That's when the train tracks cross, and I derail. I don't have power over that. I don't know when that's going to happen. It could be not a cloud on the horizon, great day, or it could be the worst day of my life, a trial and low spot. Right? Eagles win or Eagles lose? Oh, my God. What if the <laughs> Eagles lose tonight? Am I going to eat over that? Well, if I tell you if I do, I'll be probably going eating all till next season, if, if I can ever get back here. Or if they win. Or if they win, I might want to celebrate. And that's, and that's what I'm up against. If, I, if my spiritual condition is not right and that spirit of mine is not taking control and tethering me to something bigger than, than me, that is what I'm up against. Eating on a good day, eating on a bad day. Um, that's the insanely, tr insanely trivial excuse for taking the first bite and my sound reasoning fails to hold me in check and the insane idea wins out. Can anybody relate to that? See, I can't have this as a intellectual experience. I have to have it here in my gut. Like, yeah, that happens to me. Um, when we go back to, you know, Jim is a, is, Jim is a low bottom alcoholic with a bad day 
Fred is a high-bottom alcoholic. He doesn't think there's anything wrong with him, and he's got a great day. And both of them drink. Mm -hmm. And both of them drink not because they're under the physical allergy. They drink because they have the decision. There's something in their mind that flips and says, I can have a drink with, with impunity, no consequences. Um, it brings me back to... Tim, Kim talked about testing the allergy, and I'm going to talk about testing the mental obsession. So um, to test the mental obsession, to test the allergy, she said you, you walk over to the nearest pantry, right? Well, I knew I was going to fail that test. <laughs> and to test the mental obsession, where is it? Here it is. On 34, it says, if anyone questions whether he has entered this dangerous area where lack of power is my dilemma, I'm, I'm sober, I'm abstinent, and I, you know, I think I'm good, right? But maybe this mental obsession could be on me. Let him try leaving food alone for one year. If he's a real alcoholic and very far advanced, there's a scant chance of his success. So a lot of us do this. We, we test the obsession without even knowing. I'm going to get abstinent for one year. That's what I did. I got abstinent for six years. I had no idea that I would not be able to continue that. I had no idea. And I had no idea that I wouldn't be able to come back. That's the sadder part. Um, <clears throat> I want to end with, on page 44, where we started. Because there's no 60 questions, 50 questions. Uh, I don't know if I'm, an alcohol, uh, if I'm a compulsive overeater or not. There's two questions. One of them has to do with what Kim talked about, the physical allergy. One of them has to do with what I talked about, the mental obsession. It covers both. That's, that's the two-folded fold illness that we are under that make up our spiritual malady, right? So it says if, and that's a condition. Well, let me check this out. If. If what? If when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely. That's, okay, I can't quit chocolate entirely because I quit it. And I'm a real great dieter, and I'm a real great OA member, but why then do I pick up? So check. I, che I can check that, yes, I have a mental obsession. Or if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take. <laughs> well, when I do have that chocolate, I'm not having one Hershey kiss. My intention <laughs> is to have one Hershey kiss. But by the end, that bag's gone. Check. I have a physical allergy. So it says here... You probably have little control over the amount that you take. You are probably a compulsive overeater. See, we don't like to pronounce anybody that. You, can have, you have to find out for yourself. It's not hard. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. And on directly uh, opposite, on page 45, it says, We could wish to be moral. We could wish to be philosophical. We, in fact, we could will these things with all of our might, but the much-needed power wasn't there. Our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. Can you relate to that? I can. I'm down for the count, and I'm crying uncle. So step one, if you fully get it, in your mind and heart, will propel you to step two. Lack of power. That was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously, but where and how are we to find this power? Step two is the solution. 
I, we talked about the problem. Now we're in the solution. It says, well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. This power that's going to solve my food problem is not in a diet. That's what makes Overeaters Anonymous 100 times different than any diet plan. So if you are one of us, welcome home. Mm -hmm. There is a solution here, and the rest of this book is designed to get you there to peace and serenity and neutrality around food. It's possible. That's all I have. Thank you.